0: Hi, my name is Ken Navarro, and welcome to my podcast. As many of you know, I just released an album on September 21st called Music for Guitar and Orchestra. As part of the celebration of this special release, I'm doing a series of podcasts where I speak with some of the people who were very important in bringing this project to fruition. Today, I'm going to speak with keyboardist and musician Dan LaMaestra. Dan is someone I've known for almost 20 years. We first worked together when he joined my band back in the early 2000s. We traveled the country, played all over the place, got to know each other well, and realized we shared many of the same values as regards music and why music making is so important to us. Now, Dan works as the pianist in the Navy Commodore's big band. As this project began to develop, I realized I was going to need someone who could help me with various facets of it, finding the right recording studio, hiring the right musicians, helping me create the parts for the musicians out of my scores. And Dan, with his many talents, was just the right guy for this job. So without further ado, Let's talk to Dan Maestra. Dan, it's great to have you here with me on my podcast. I think this is the first time you've done my podcast with me, isn't it? I
1: think so, yeah. This is exciting.
0: Yeah, well, we, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, your contribution to Music for Guitar and Orchestra was not only an important contribution, but a very wide contribution in that you contributed to many different aspects and facets of the entire recording process. So varied and so broad and and spread out over a long period of time from when we first spoke about this, which I think was like in January or February of 2017, to when the the album was finally finished in July of 2018. That That's a long time to be involved with any project, especially when it's somebody else's. So, um, you know, that, w- there's a lot of ground for us to cover, and I'm looking forward to sharing with my fans and also, you know, listeners of this podcast what goes into making an album like this, um, uh, specifically... Uh, with the musicians, the an orchestra uh, specifically, and uh, how to how to communicate this kind of music to so many people. You know, as I mentioned in my introduction, we've known each other for a long time. We've played together and traveled together, and so working together like this wasn't. Um, you know, an entirely new thing. I think we were both pretty comfortable with each other, and we 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 knew each other's strengths and for that matter, potentially weaknesses or soft spots or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, for me, it was it was a a great experience doing this with you, and it also really kind of, um, whether you meant to or not, I was learning things from you as part of this process. I'm curious to know for you, what what was this process like for you and what, what, did, what did you come away better for uh, from doing this? Wow, um, thank you for
1: that. Uh, yeah, and I agree with all of that. Um, it's been an amazing experience. Thank you, Ken, and um, thank you for having me on your podcast. Um, you know, uh, in terms of um, what I came away with, every single time that I uh, arrange anything, uh, I always know that there's going to be moments of decision making in 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 various levels. Uh, Not just, you know, like if I'm actually writing the music or arranging, I know that I'm going to have to be making decisions and um, regarding how I present the music to the musicians. And maybe I end up, you know, uh, uh, editing and stuff like that. But in your case, in your case, um, it was uh, it was especially interesting because uh, I I I was also uh, working with contracting the musicians uh, and they were and, you know, they were musicians that had not all played together. Uh, on brand new music before they had all worked, you know, maybe together doing uh, uh, pit work and orchestra work and stuff like that. So, so it, it was like an opportunity to, uh, uh, to look at the music and give you advice on the music and prepare the music for people that were very excited to interact with each other musically um, in the studio, uh, uh, you know, on music that wasn't, you know, Beethoven's Ninth. You know, right. Right. And and that that
0: was really cool because. Uh, we yeah. Well, it's like you were putting together one of the many jobs that you did was was what we call musician contracting, which is, you know, an, a, 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 a term for really just saying hiring the right musicians for for the music and for the recording sessions. And so you were really helping to put together a very large band, yes, <laughs> you know, custom picked. And that I'd, I'd be interested to hear you share, you know, your thoughts about the challenges of picking just the right musicians for this music, regardless of whether or not they had ever worked together as a full unit before. Definitely. I mean, that's definitely, you know,
1: a a, a rabbit hole, obviously, but a a few highlights um, for uh, your listeners that I can I can include are, uh, you know, you have to spend time uh, not only researching that their current things on the web, obviously, you know, there's a lot of musicians that have YouTube videos, and they have, you know, great um, websites. And, and also, Mm -hmm. you know, I've worked with some of them personally, you know, uh, but also, there's the element of, uh, of actually speaking to them on on the phone, in in musicians speak, so to so to speak, right? So we're 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 I I got very very specific with people about um, about a lot of musical things in your music, and um, and it, I did some of these things, in fact, even before hiring them, um, just to just to you know check their their general state of comfort level. For example, something like swing sixteenth notes, which happens in uh, smooth sensation you know, that's something, that's one uh, of many things that we talked about with your music that we wanted to make sure people would be comfortable with. And even though I knew that a lot of orchestral musicians were going to have maybe different interpretations of that, you know, it, it's, it's amazing what, uh, what you can get um, when you, you know, when you really speak with somebody about specifics and you show them the parts, you show them the music and you you just get a general level of comfort. And, uh, and, you know, those are the kind of things that I would do when I was talking to them, and also it's you know some of the more obvious things people might think about, like uh, how many uh, how many types of, of jobs have they done as a violinist or as a violist or as a cellist? You know what kind of jobs are they doing? You know if it's somebody that's been doing a lot of uh, pit work for shows and uh, doing orchestral music, and uh, maybe even you know doing some pop recordings here and there. You know those are people that are going to be high on the list. Um, in addition to the fact that they're A-list players. Uh, in the area already, in terms of in terms
0: of reputation. Yeah, I think it goes without saying that we were only interested in the upper tier, you know, of of orchestral musicians for this music, partly because the music was difficult in many places, and also because we had so much music to get recorded in only two and a half days, we needed people who could sight-read anything, And pretty much play anything we put in front of them. Um, But you touched upon a moment ago about something that I think was was fundamental to us both, and that was the issues of of rhythm and feel. And, you know, these are, feel is something that you and I and jazz musicians and rock musicians and R&B musicians have, you know, we know exactly what we're talking about. But that's always not true of orchestral musicians um, who pretty much play what you put in front of them. And if the feel, quote unquote, isn't notated in some way, they don't necessarily put it into it the way you and I would. Um, So I think some of the conversations that you had with musicians were very important because they enlightened you and then you enlightened me as to what potential strengths or weaknesses might, you know, we might, we might run into what, one, one song in particular that comes to mind is, is the stars, the snow, the fire, the, the, the section that occurs in the first part of the guitar solo section where the orchestra has to basically swing. Uh, certainly parts of them do. And, um, you know, I, I think that was one moment that, and I don't know how you felt, I'd like to hear how you felt, that was one moment where I kind of held my breath and went, oh boy, you know, is this going to work? Are they going to be able to do this? I mean, they were reading all the right notes, but it took them a while to find the the groove. And again, that's something you and I know exactly what that means. They don't necessarily, but it took them a while to find the groove or the pocket Um uh, to uh, for how it would to make it so that it would swing, um, and uh, yeah. did you have those that same feeling when, when they first went into that and they weren't really doing it the, the way that it was intended?
1: Yeah, no, great stuff, Ken. Um, so I, you know, I had that in a, in a in a kind of layered way, and there's a reason why because. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one one thing uh, that I've learned uh, in my Navy job, you know, whenever... You know, so I play jazz in the Commodores, as you probably talked about mm-hmm. in the intro. Um, right. And, you know, whenever whenever I go upstairs, upstairs in the Navy band room is the sail loft in the building. Where, that's where the concert band works, and they have a conductor, and they have, you know, all the players up there, and, and it's a pretty large And they're crew. playing...
0: Right. Yeah, they're playing orchestral exactly. music for the most part, right? Right.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I'm bringing that up, you know, in this situation because... Um, you know so when I'm downstairs there's no conductor there's no conductor with the jazz band we are actually all about feel the entire time and right. and when I go upstairs um, the most interesting thing to me is that um, you have to watch the conductor for how he wants it to go and if it's a really good conductor that knows how to communicate these things and a lot of times these the officers up there are good at this you know they're going to give that information they're going to put it out there and what I notice is when I go up there my tendency is to go with the musicians on stage but that's mm. that's actually not that's actually a mistake on you know initial read throughs y- you wanna, you want to you want to go with what the conductor's laying down and what's interesting is in the concert band if there's percussionists and even a drummer and a bass player and all that there's literally a rhythm section up there but there's somebody conducting that rhythm section along with the harp on the other side of the room and all that and so what I'm what I'm suggesting here is that the players uh, the players are dealing with not only you know playing what they have in front of them, but they're look they're they're looking to Jonathan as you know, Jonathan Merrill, the conductor for your recording, as uh, as the indicator of how this is supposed to go. And so I knew that there was going to be several moments where they had to start making these decisions that I would make upstairs, but they would have to do it the opposite. So where, mm-hmm. whereas when I was at the Navy Band upstairs, I would actually. Have to say, oh wait, 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 go with the conductor. I know what you're hearing over there with the rhythm section, but you want to go with what he wants for the piano part. Whereas, right. whereas um, with with Stars of the Fire, what you're talking about, you know, what they had to do was they had to decide how much they would listen to each other versus and the click and the recording
0: and all that versus what they were getting from Jonathan. Right, and we can't forget that they the and one of the other requirements was they had to be very comfortable playing to a click track, which was, um, you know, critical to everything lining up, uh, especially because, you know, I was bringing in guest performers from all over the country to play their parts later. And of course, I I I played guitar parts later as well. So that click track was important. They had Jonathan to contend with, which, as it turned out, he was very, very helpful. I think he was, um, uh, I've had numerous musicians from the sessions tell me that he was, Watching what he was showing them in terms of some of the difficult time signatures was very helpful they 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 wanted to see what he was doing, but they had to keep that click track in mind you know they, and, and there was there was what we would call program material in their headphones too. Um, you know things that were gonna parts that were gonna be replaced by Dave Weckl on drums or Eric Marienthal on sax later, but they had they had virtual instrument parts or demo parts in their headphones, so they had a lot to to listen to. Plus, what you brought up, which is really important, is. They were trying to listen to themselves because what usually what orchestral musicians do is only listen to themselves and watch the conductor. So they had listen to your listen to the your fellow musicians, watch the conductor. Of course, they also have to read the music, and then on top of that, they had click track and demo parts in their headphones, um, which had to be played accurately too, not just. Not just kind of given a passing, you know, nod, but they had to be treated, um, you know, uh, uh, as as important um, uh, elements uh, as all part of the recording. So um, yeah, it's 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 interesting, you know, hearing you talk about that contrast between the Navy Commodore's jazz band, big band, and the con the Navy concert band, and how you know how what a different hat you have to put on if you're going to work with those two different bands, because one represents the pocket and the groove and feel, and there isn't even a conductor, and the other one, those musicians are playing what you put in front of them and what the conductor tells them he or she wants them to do in terms of interpretation. You know, so something else I want to talk about with you that obviously happened before we were picking and creating this monster orchestra that that you and the Perkels, Dave and Mary Ann Perkel put together. We had to pick the studio, the recording studio. And as some of my listeners know, I work almost exclusively in my own studio. But this was not something that you could do in your own studio. Uh, we wanted to have the, the entire orchestra performing at the same time in one room. That's part of what makes this album sound so live and in, you know exciting and vibrant. Um, so you were very important in researching and, and helping me to decide what was the right studio. Um, I, I believe you looked at two or three or maybe even four places it, it, before we selected Omega, which is where we recorded. Is, am I remembering right, Dan? Uh, I, it,
1: it, I I think I was just thinking while you were saying that, I think it, it was five, actually, that I spoke to. Wow. Five options, yeah. yeah. And um, I have a few things to say about that um, that might be interesting.
0: Yeah, go right ahead.
1: Well, um, so backing up... Uh, you know at every every project that people do has a budget you know whatever your budget yep. is even if you're Steven Spielberg you have a budget you have a budget and and you've got you've got producers that are telling you you know these are these are the this is the budget this is the budget line and and we had a budget line going into this and um, and while there was some flexibility as there always is you know um, you hope there is and in, in projects of this scope you know um I had to uh, I had to figure out a, Uh, you know, size considerations, you know, um, Mm. is -hmm. the studio literally big enough to fit... Uh, but also, right. we have to remember that when we started this, we actually had various iterations of the configuration. We actually had like larger configuration options because we weren't sure, right. you know, what it was going to cost. And um, and so, I remember uh, putting together uh, a what ended up being kind of a complex spreadsheet. I don't know if you still have that, but there was a spreadsheet. I do. Yeah, <laughs> the spreadsheet of of uh, the just the the initial dollars and cents. And what we did was we put together spreadsheets of of different, um, uh, scenarios and said, if you have X amount of musicians and you have them for this many hours, you know, this is what it would cost. And we had to know what those costs would be so that we could look at the actual studios that we were being presented with. So even if a studio was big enough and good enough, we, you know, we, we obviously have to deal with their hourly fees and their other fees and figure that out. We also had to figure out parking issues. And, um, and then, you know, there was a, uh, there were options like, um, uh, bias Recording, which is a great recording studio in Springfield. We uh, I, I I talked to uh, Bob Dawson over there and his wife, and we had um, we had some good communication back and forth. And for anybody listening to this, that's an amazing studio. I've done amazing work there was uh, over the years with different people, and they 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 really tossed this ball around several times before getting back to us. And they finally decided that um, that it just really wasn't something they were comfortable with because of the sheer size of what you were doing.
0: Um, Yeah, it was like we could almost fit, but we probably could have fit, but it would have been awkward, you know, to say the least. And the sound would not have had a room to really move, the right size room, a large enough room to really move around in the, the way that is part of what an orchestra is supposed to sound like. You don't want to record an orchestra... In a dead small room that they're packed into, you know, (laughs) that's not even talking about the fact that you don't want trombone players hitting people in the head (laughs) or violin bows banging into, you know, Uh, but even if that had been manageable, there were, in my mind, questions as to whether... A, a smaller room like that was going to give us the sound that was the whole reason why we were recording the orchestra as a whole.
1: Yes, definitely. Of course, because, you know, we have a lot of microphones in there, you know, you not only have mm-hmm. microphones on the individual instruments, but you have room microphones that are just picking up the, the reverberations, all the reflections that are happening right, everywhere. That's right. And uh, and even microphones for sections so that you actually have not only each violin, but you've got the sections and you can make decisions when you're doing your mix. Later, on which you know which you like the best. Um, I remember also we uh, we looked at uh, at working with a, um, a company. I don't remember the details, but they offered us a quote where we were we were going to uh, potentially record remotely in a
0: very very large right. uh, cathedral like church, and right. um, which would have been really cool. But once we saw the price tag of what it costs for them to move all their equipment in and set it up and all that stuff, it, it, it fairly quickly was like well that can't be on the table cuz that's just too much money and not only
1: that but, but uh, there's you know there's the 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 margin for error that you always have to you mm-hmm. know weigh which is okay wait a second you're setting up all this gear remotely that means every right. cable every microphone every little button has to work and and every time something doesn't work and you're on the clock you're on the clock and the musicians are on the clock and we're sitting there waiting for some engineer to figure out why x y z isn't working and so you know it even at omega you know we uh, we still had a few issues come up which you have to expect but can you imagine that would be exponentially larger in some huge space with remote gear
0: yeah i think when people are working in their own environment you're going to have far less of those problems and 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 eventually you know we settled on Omega because of that reason, as well as they had a room that really was designed to do exactly what it is that we wanted to do. Now, the other thing about Omega that, and I think this was, would have been true of any of the studios that we were talking to, because they were all, you know, top notch places, but Omega in particular had a, and I didn't realize this completely and not even a hundred percent until I was mixing. Um, They had a microphone collection that was really quite astounding uh, in terms of the quality and the choices. Um, And when I was mixing, I became pretty aware of how wonderful a a $4,000 microphone sounds. And then when you have like 60 or 70 mics of that quality, (laughs) you know, um, it adds up. And I I can tell you that um, I really did very little EQing to things that were the orchestral mics. I did my my best to pretty much keep them the way that they were recorded. So everything was very natural sounding. And that, in this day and age anyway, is unusual. Um, You're almost always having to correct for certain EQ issues. But um, when you're dealing with really great microphones, a really great sounding room, and an engineer at Omega um, who Jim Curtis, who knew what he was doing. Um, you really don't want to mess with that, you know, because you're and so anyway, I think that's part of what the 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 challenge with finding the right studio was to get all three of those elements interacting. You know, a great engineer, great microphones, uh, and, a, and a wonderful sounding room that was was right right for this. And, um, you know, so I th- we, we absolutely uh, picked the right studio uh, to, to, to do this re- recording of the orchestra, in, in, in my opinion. Were, were there any things that, you know, now that we've learned some lessons from doing it, were there any things that you would do differently as, in terms of the recording studio and, and, uh, and how we worked with them?
1: Oh, wow, that's an interesting question. I mean, um, I've, I've always enjoyed working at Omega. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, wow, that I would do differently.
0: Um, hmm. Well, for example, something that I would do differently is, I and mean, we had our hands full, Dan. I mean, we had so much going on, um, making sure that the music was was right. You can't be everywhere all the time, right? But what I would do, is pay a little bit more attention uh, to making sure that microphone placement was adjusted per each composition. I think the mics were pretty much left once they were set up. They were pretty much left in one place for each instrument, and most of the time that's that's fine. But there were there were pieces. Um, where it would have made sense to potentially mic um, certain instruments differently. And for example, they did do that. They did change the mics with some of the trumpet stuff because sometimes we had muted trumpet. And when we had that, we wanted it to be more close mic'd instead of a mic you know, above, high above, uh, which is typically where a mic would be for trumpets and trombones and so on. And so that would be something I'd do different. I I, I would have... I would have been looking for that and then speaking up and saying, do we want to think about miking the, you know, the, the, um, the strings a little differently for this long pizzicato section. I'm thinking of the beginning of Grace's Summer Light, for instance, um, you know, to get the, to get the most out of most sensitivity out of the, out of the pit strings in, in the opening uh, minute and a half of that or so, you know, but it's, it's stuff like that, you know, whether we could have done that this time, it's doubtful to me because, because first and foremost, I felt like my responsibility was to make sure that the music was getting played and then recorded correctly. It's just as an engineer later, there were times where um, I had to do whatever I had to do to make sure you could hear things that were more delicate and possibly they could have been recorded uh, more appropriately in the first place. Yes,
1: I remember talking to you about that. Um, It's a very good point. Um, You know, you're right. Uh, There were a lot of balls in the air. And uh, and in fact, there was... There was uh, the most obvious thing was a tremendous amount of time giving the orchestra the the necessary opportunity for each song to, you know, to get their bearings, you know, because every every, we had done a lot of preparation. Uh, We had sent um, sample recordings. We had sent the headphone click. We had sent the music way in advance. I created a a list of bullet points of your songs. Mm -hmm. I spoke to people on the phone. We did all this preparation. And yet still, when people were in the studio, they had to they had to get a chance to run through. They had to get a chance to uh, to play with uh, to play with the conductor and really see what it felt like. And so when we bring up this idea of the of the microphones, even if we would have known that we wanted to make some of those adjustments, um, you know, when we were in the middle of it, I remember that there really just was this abundant curiosity going on with us in the booth on like what is this really going to sound like? Are they are right. you know which which instrumental um, sections? Uh, of this piece are going to be easier to execute than others. And, you know, we've got the scores right in front of us, and we're sitting there thinking right. with a pencil, like, what what are we going to have to focus on? And as it turned out, things that we thought would be hard were not hard, and things that we thought would right. be easy were hard, right? And so <laughs> I know,
0: exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think it's important for people to understand that, um, you know, an orchestra of that size, they have to tune with 36, 37, 38 other people. Um, you know, they're not tuning to three other people like a jazz band does, or even a big band tuning to 15 or 16 other people. They're, they're tuning to each other. And so that's all part of getting their bearings, I think. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, so we're, let me paint the picture here for folks. You know, we're in the studio now. We've, we've, we've picked the right studio. Everything is set up. We've picked the right conductor, um, the musicians have been thoroughly prepared and given the music well in advance which by the way i should mention that's not the way these kinds of musicians usually work they say i can read anything by on site i'm a total pro you give me the music and downbeat and i play it you know so we have we did a lot of preparation and did everything we could to help the musicians prepare, but we couldn't make them prepare. However, from what I can tell, and you know better than me, because you spoke with each and every one of these musicians before the sessions, I think most of them, not all of them, did did all kinds of preparation to make sure when they came in there, they were ready to go. Um, but anyway, so let me paint this picture for our, our listeners. So we're now in the studio. We've got the right studio. Everything's there, the right conductor. And you and I are in what, what we would call the control room, where the engineer is and the playback speakers and, and so on. and But you and I have a score, a large score, that contains all of the parts for all of the instruments, and we are following this score as the orchestra is recording. Now, Jonathan, our conductor, has a pair of headphones on, and we have a microphone right in front of us at what at at the desk we're sitting at. And so we can talk to Jonathan and he can talk to us and only Jonathan hears what we're saying to him. So we're able to give him feedback on what we need to change a little bit, what we would like to hear them um, potentially um, make a small adjustment to in order to get what we want. Uh, and what the music is is needing um and you know it was it was it was and i'd like to hear you talk about that a little bit i know what it was like for me i was the composer uh it was it was all my music all my orchestrations um i had i had copious notes on all the different things that were happening you know every four bars i had like a you know reams of paper uh so that i could quickly even without looking at the score know what were the important bullet points for me you on the other hand had um a role where you're kind of sitting on the fence you i'm I, and i'd like to hear you talk about what that what that was like for you thank you ken um so uh
1: yes, uh I'm sitting at the table next to you and um and I've got my sharpened pencils ready to go. I also had my laptop open um to uh Finale, which is the software that we use uh uh to uh you know create these scores and edit and everything and I had a printer there and so and and you and
0: you and you took the scores and then figured out the best way to um Uh, to lay out the parts so that the players, again, once again, we were doing everything we could to make this as easy and clear as possible for each individual player. And that was another one of the many roles that you played was as what we would call, um, uh, what I would call part preparation. In other words, in finale, you've got the score, and then it automatically generates parts, uh, which are pretty, pretty good, but they're not perfect. And we wanted perfect, uh, sure. <laughs> and and you delivered perfect. Um, so anyway, so yeah, just so people understand, you had a printer there in case we needed to change a part at the last. That's minute. right. And we and you, we could do it, print it up, and run it out into the studio. Uh, into the main room where they were recording and and give a flute player a a a new part if we needed to for that maybe we only changed four bars but we were ready to print up the whole part so they could just quickly take the other one away put that one down we didn't have to do that very much I think I only think of one time we had to do something like that but uh, yeah no so anyway I I interrupted you sorry I just want to make sure people understood what 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 all that? Meant.
1: Oh, definitely, uh, and that's that's a good thing to touch on too. But um, I'll mention just sitting at the table something that, that um, is I call it just like the working dynamic because I I know you well and we're friends and we've worked together a lot. So one of the things that um, that I understand about um, it being in this role is number one is decisions are happening very quickly uh, mm-hmm. because the clock is ticking, and so we've done all this preparation, all this work, and so one of the things that I doing is uh, I, I am making quick little lists and little notes as the song is going regarding, for example, oh, um, it sounds like that French horn hit a wrong note. It sound, mm-hmm. but I'm not bringing it up yet. I'm only making a list, mm-hmm. making a note. And then once we stop that take, what I would do is I would mention to you, I would first I would make sure you were available to
0: hear what I was saying <laughs> because, you know. I'm laughing because that's a polite way of saying, I know you were... I know you had a lot on your right, mind, right. and you weren't always able to hear me. Right. <laughs> no, but I, I I understand and I appreciate. Right. That. And that's that's just that's
1: just you know I I think um uh that's just good general human communication, but that's also an mm-hmm. understanding of how to work with someone in 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 a high pressure environment like this. So mm-hmm. so instead of just blurting out all this stuff, I knew okay, I've got a list of things. Let me make sure he's ready to hear, and then I would just say bam, 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 bam. And some of the things mm. turned out every once in a while it. Would be very useful things where you would say, "Wow, I was so in, I was so listening to what the strings were doing there that I didn't catch that French horn missing that note or not coming exactly. in." Exactly. And then, exactly. And you know, if you just imagine me doing that like all three days, that's I was doing a lot of that. And then I would just have my notes, have my notes, just make sure you were getting everything. And then, besides that, you're dealing with performance things too. So if the French horn section, I'm only bringing them up because we have these three French horn players. There's these excellent mm-hmm. players. They're completely nailing the part they're playing what you want but what happens is you know we know this music after working on it for months and we're like you know what okay they played it well but do we want them to do it a little more here or a little less there Mm -hmm. and now Mm -hmm. this is like this uh, this is like this musical decision that you have the luxury of making because you have these right. great players that are not having trouble playing the parts now you can actually get on the mic and say hey Jonathan can you ask them to you know to ramp it up a little bit and measure whatever and mm-hmm. and you know we were doing stuff like that and just for the listeners sake I would say that um, one of the one of the greatest lessons that I've learned in my life as a musician that does this kind of work is this kind of work forces you to learn how to make decisions and how to make them in a confident manner that you're not going to back up on later and say, you know what, I should have done X instead of Y. You have to really you, you can't waffle on stuff you have to really know what you really want what you really think and you have to know it quickly and you have to do that over and over and over again and i i would um guess that that's probably true for uh directing and on location work and uh in editing films as well you 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 know when when the options are so many regarding the execution of of recorded art you have to decide what you want because if you don't they're going to give you something that they think is okay. And, um, and, and that's gonna happen over and over again. So that was one of the things I was doing was uh, providing you with data that you could use Uh, And then every once in a while, you would ask me, you would say, hey, Dan, do you, what do you think they should do? And then I would take a moment and pause in a short moment, and then I would give Mm -hmm. you my feedback. And, um, and the feedback was also, this is one way you could do it, because we're dealing with your compositions. And ultimately, you know, the way that it is on the CD right now is a representation of how you believe it should go, which is the way it should be. It's, you want it to be that way. And I bring that up because there are some directors that don't have what's called final cut when they make movies you know <laughs> right. so you know they might apologize later they might say you know what i directed the movie but i didn't have any control over the final product and yeah. and yep. and that happens all the time but in this case you had final cut which means that during the actual uh, process any input that i gave to you at the booth would be something that you could either use or consider you know or or you could decide you know what i know what you're t- talking about but i'm okay with the way it was and we did that little Process
0: probably hundreds of times every day. Right, I think. I think um, you know, and, and you did it very well because you the one th- you what that sounds like, um, not being in the in 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 the 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 middle of, of of the hurricane when we were doing this. Not not that it was chaotic, but just it was intense. You know, we were so focused for for hour after hour. But hearing that and being able to step back from it and listen to it. You know, that's a tricky thing to do socially, what you did, because you're you you your whole goal is to what can I contribute that will help Ken? And that's that's a very selfless way to be. It's part of why, uh, you know, I wanted I, I I picked you to to be so involved in in this because I knew that about you in, in instinctively that you were about the, the good of the project, um, as opposed to some people where, you know, their ego gets intertwined with, and we all have egos. It's hard not to have the ego intertwined with it. Um, but I knew that that was not where you were coming from. And, um, but that, you know, I appreciate it very much, especially hearing about it with some distance, uh, because I, I realized that's, that's a tricky position to be in, you know, uh, picking your moments, so to speak. Uh, Yet at the same time, just in other words, what I'm getting from this is it sounds like you were very involved in it as if it was your own project, making notes about every little thing that, that you heard as it went by. But then you had the additional thing of picking your moments of when to bring them up and when are they going to do the most good and when is it best to, let's not say anything about that French horn note because maybe the next take he'll play it right and it's taking care of itself. We don't we don't need to point out to every player whenever they hit a bad note, you know. Um, but But of course, we had to make sure because like you said i might not have heard it because i was so focused on something else there's so much to listen to in this music uh and uh, uh but so anyway it gives me a new appreciation of of what you did cuz i was i was certainly aware of that when it was happening but we were in the the battle of this you know uh and there's a lot of other distractions needless to say um uh and and it's all you know my focus was the same thing too how do we get the best, final product here um,
1: oh yeah so. and that's great Ken and 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 you mentioned something too about the musicians point of view that we're dealing with the psychology of players yes they're professionals yes they're being paid yes they're really good but they're human beings and and also right. you know there's there's uh, these people are are one take people they are accustomed yep. to going in and one of the reasons for that is because of budgets being so tight and time being so tight a lot of the projects that that they happen to work on with for different Clients, there's just not enough time to do anything more than one take, right. and so in this right. case, uh, what would happen is we would say, "Okay, let's do it again, and this time we want X." Okay, can you guys do that section again? And um, a lot of these players probably weren't expecting that. And they were like, "Okay, well, what was wrong with the first thing I did?" You know, or right. what was you know, <laughs> right, did, did I? Right. What didn't you like about it? And so that was another communication is is that uh, is that the stronger we can communicate. Uh, you know, what it, it, what it is that we want it to feel like or be like, um, the, uh, you know, the better they're going to understand. But I used the word luxury before. We really gave ourselves the luxury of being able to do that because if we had not done all that prep work before and th- if this was the first time people were looking at this music, oh my goodness gracious, you know. Oh man, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And, we, and, and, and part of that prep work, was that we were sure as sure as you can be that everything on the page was absolutely correct uh, i think we still found a wrong note somewhere uh in this in 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 a part you know out of 45 minutes of music but maybe there you could count them on one hand and that's also part of the preparation too and that has a lot to do with our us being able to have the confidence to give direction and even alternative direction when we would do another take because we knew we were sure that what they were reading was absolutely what we wanted um once you start doubting that (laughs) i think there was a moment when when with grace of summer light i think it was or maybe it was the stars the snow the fire both very challenging pieces for them to play um and one of them somebody found i think somebody found a, a, a wrong note but then it opened up almost like opened up the floor to people questioning any note that they weren't sure was the right note and of course some of these were chord clusters where I don't want to confuse my listeners but basically notes very close to each other that were absolutely what I wanted but maybe not what they were used to playing that much of the time and and I remember feeling like, I have to shut this down now. Uh, I can't, we can't go down this rabbit hole of, of people starting to question notes that, that just because they're, they, they're not sure um, that that's the correct thing, you know. And, and the point of me telling you that story or telling the listeners that story is that that was part of the preparation, too, that we could be that confident that we could go, you know, nope, that's right. Don't worry about it. Just play it, <laughs> which, which, you know, av- having had a few conversations with some orchestral musicians since the recordings took place, I've learned more uh, about how they think. You know, as a guitar player, when somebody puts a well-written part in front of me, I go into it, and I imagine you do the same thing as a pianist, I go into it paying a lot of attention to what they've written, but just assuming that I'm going to be making changes so that it sounds the way they really want it to sound. um, That's just because a lot of composers, they don't really know how to write for the guitar so that it gives them what they want. And I learned from all my years working in in L.A., I learned that um, you've got to, to do things that they can't possibly know to write, so that you play their notes but you give them the effect that they're looking for on the guitar especially when i see would see the word solo and they had written it all out that means i've got to sound like somebody taking a solo it can't sound like i'm reading music um and i'm sure you you've experienced same thing but orchestral musicians they don't come at it from that way they come at it from what's on the page is my job to play that faithfully even if there's a completely wrong note in there, and they're pretty sure it's wrong, they're gonna play it just as forcefully wrong as they play it right, because that's what they're trained to do. Um, I'm sure as a pianist, you've experienced the same thing, right? Where you, you've you got to have an open mind, even when you're reading a, a very thorough and well-written part for, for, for piano.
1: Oh, definitely. Uh, well, on that piece, um... I, I take it back to if the musician that's playing the part is an improvising musician as part of what they do in their mm-hmm. craft... Then uh, an improvising musician not only can read what's in front of them but they can also react to what they're hearing around them and what's in front of them and mm-hmm. make those you know make those adjustments we're talking about. so if I'm as a piano player, if I see you know a, a cluster of notes that I know is a, is a for example a C dominant seventh chord and I see the the arranger just you know put it on beat three for example. Well, I'm listening to the bass and the drums and the and the strings and the singer and all kinds of other stuff. And there are many times where I might decide to roll that chord a little bit, or I might mm-hmm. decide to uh, to uh, put a little more emphasis on one of the notes because of what I'm hearing the singer sing or what I'm hearing somebody do. And part of that decision making is before I even start playing it, listen uh, knowing who who it who is it that wrote this chart. If a if a uh, classical musician that plays uh, third clarinet wrote this chart. Then I need to be extra careful because they're not piano players, and they they would even tell me that they'd say, "Look, I'm not a pianist. I did the best I could. Please, you know, mm-hmm. uh, see what you can do." But if a jazz guitarist that knows very well what they want and how things are going to go wrote the chart for me. I'm going to be, I'm going to take that into consideration, you know, regarding right. the decision to make adjustments. Cause I'm going to think, you know what, they, they, they very specifically put that chord on beat three. I'm not going to roll it. I'm going to play it because I know that this player and this writer, you know, is familiar with this style, but going back to the, uh, the orchestral musician point of view, you know, it's that improvisation thing again, they're, they are not trained. To improvise, um, they are trained to uh, to uh, I- interpret and uh, in, and execute on a very high level uh, over and over and over again, and then perform uh, uh, perform music um, and make it sound as if they just made it up. Uh, yes, you know, just yeah, like, yeah. Um, just like uh, uh, you know, Louis C.K., the great comedian. You know, he's there's an interview where uh, he's doing an interview with uh, Jerry Seinfeld and um, and Chris Rock and um, Ricky Gervais. It's on YouTube. Somewhere, oh yeah, I've you know? seen yeah. that. Yeah, I've seen so it. So yeah. there, there's this clip. Um, where he's talking about how, you know, he, he says he knows every little piece, he knows every little thing uh, in the um, that he's going to do, but he makes it sound as if he's just, you know, bantering with the audience, right. you know, which right. is, exactly. and, and that's the thing is that, you know, a really good improviser, you know, can can honestly make you feel like they have been working on that for months, you know, and,
0: exactly. and yet
1: it just spills out. But like these orchestral musicians, if you don't tell them definitely, down bow, mezzo forte, you're playing with the oboe, you know, crescendo here. If you don't put those notations there, the, if they don't see it, now they may not raise their hand. But now they're going to give you whatever dynamic they think will work best. Yeah, and and, and right. they're, yeah, right. they're going to give you whatever bow, whatever articulation. And so that's a, that, that's a piece we knew in advance. And so there were a lot of hours put into not only uh, making sure these things were readable on the charts, but also deciding... Do you really want that instrument XYZ to play, you know, uh, mezzo forte while this instrument's playing piano or whatever? And you that's
0: yet another decision. You had to really think, yeah. is that and, what I want? And, and all the articulations, too. We, you know, one thing that we did weeks in advance was we made sure that the Boeings were all finished and agreed upon and in the score and the parts that the players were going to see, so we were thinking of every little detail. I think as someone listens to this album, hopefully they're simply blown away by the the impact of it and the emotional impact of it, and that is the bottom line. but it's they should know the the kind of attention that went into this so that they could have that kind of an experience um, without anything getting in the way of it technically. Uh, and by the way, I should also point out that um, while I would say most of the string players were coming pretty strictly from an orchestral viewpoint, we certainly hired uh, some of the brass players. Uh, were people we hired were people who did have jazz experience and and big band experience, uh, and so you know we were certainly this was a custom picked. orchestra we put together. And we knew that we, there were certain places, well, for example, every woodwind player was basically a soloist. They had to be able to, when, when they're, when they were pointed at in the music, they had to be able to play as if they were a a star soloist. And, uh, and that was also very true of the trumpets, uh, maybe less true of the bones, the trombones uh, or the tuba, but, but certainly very true of, um, of 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 the trumpets and I would say the woodwinds and and so we you know we picked carefully people who had very broad musical experiences and knowledge just like we do and just like Jonathan Merrill our conductor did um, you know it was that was a you know a particular challenge for sure to 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 getting the right musicians and how we how we related with them in the studio so I, I wanted to jump ahead and, and finish up our conversation talking about once. We were done in the studio. Once I had recorded all of my guitar parts, Dave Weckl had come in and played drums on Grace's Summer Light. Chad Wackerman had played on The Stars, The Snow, The Fire. Eric Marienthal played on, a, on two songs, Wichita Lineman and Lucky. And uh, Laurie Andrews, the great harpist, jazz harpist out of L.A., again, picking a musician who was right for this music, played harp on six of the songs. Now I'm mixing it. And once I got pretty deep into it, I brought you back in to get your input as to what you were hearing. And again, kind of a similar role, I suppose, where you're thinking, well, I want to pick the things that maybe Ken, in the midst of everything else he's trying to hear and and properly mix, might have missed. And um, and that was uh, very helpful for me. some of the things were what you and I even you and I would consider small things but as you know those small things add up and um there were a number of things that 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 you pointed out that um that definitely made made their way into the way I approached um uh, mixing um and i'm i'm curious to hear what what your experience on the other side of that was like you know being sent these mixes that weren't 100% finished, but we're pretty far along. How did you approach listening to them so that you felt like you could, could give me something back that would be useful? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Okay. Um... So
1: something popped into my head uh, um, as you were asking me that um, that I'll elaborate on, and that's something that I've mentioned to non musicians in my life, just my friends or family that you know are not professional musicians. And what I've said mm-hmm. is, I've said sometimes uh, I wonder what it would be like to experience music as somebody that didn't really know what was going on, you know, just as right. somebody that was just
0: just enjoying it, right? And which is how most people. Let's face it, which is how even people who will listen to this album, they may have sophisticated tastes, but it isn't their job to really know how it's all happening.
1: That's that's right. Uh, and and you know, we're dealing with wearing all these hats where you're a player, you're a writer, you're an arranger, you're an engineer, you know. And so when you put all that together, you know, what what I did um and what I what I did with your music when we were at this stage and I did this also um in your studio when I came in uh as well mm-hmm. is there's this there's this um moment where I can listen to—it's like meditation, I think. Uh, I can close my eyes and listen and turn off the musician hat just enough that I can experience it um, as what I would perceive would be a music lover just somebody that mm-hmm. loves being bathed in you know this be- these beautiful sounds you know without saying hmm I'm not sure about the swing on that or I'm not sure about if that <laughs> note or whatever you know just somebody yeah. that's you know because um, what's interesting to me is is uh, you know my mother's not a musician but if she hears me play piano, she can simply say, uh, eh, I didn't really like that. Or she can say, you know, that's really beautiful what we just did there. What is that? Right? And but she's not going to mm-hmm. tell me I really like that major seventh chord, and I like the sharp five album right. to the sixth. She's not going right. to say any of that. Yep. And so that's what I made sure to do with your music is listen to it as much as possible with what I would call the listen the listener's hat. Um, exactly. And then and then if I heard anything even tiny little things that I thought um, I thought would might be a questionable moment for a listener, and I'm using my language carefully because when I say questionable, I mean the listener might be like, "What was that?" In other words, maybe like yeah. a hit. Maybe it's like, they, "Is that a marimba or is that a?" Right. It,
0: they hear it, but they're not sure what it really was. Right.
1: And I think of and I think it, in terms of like. Um, uh, distracting sounds that you might not be aware of like when I say mm-hmm. distraction this is the whole thing you're doing you're mixing so you're making and I just brought up the marimba as an example you're making these decisions and I remember at one point I think I brought I brought up a question for you about how you wanted the perception to be between the, the harp and the guitar um, right. and I think this was on Love Colored Soul um, where um, I was asking you and I, I brought up the idea of the interaction between the harp and the strings and and the guitar because you had these arpeggiated Parts, and it, it was it was much less about what a musician would think, and it was much more about the listener kind of being again bathed in these sounds. Just and right. and it was like if you really want to get into the world of love-colored soul and really live there and enjoy living there, you know what what needs to happen in the mix so that the listener can just have all of that happen around them uh, w- without w- wondering, hmm, what's that little sound over there? I'm not you know right. not really. short and then you as the as the engineer that's mixing your own record can take that and decide whether a no that's what i want we'll keep it there or b hmm I never heard it that way. Let me listen again, and then this brings up this yet again. We're dealing with decisions where you have to make a decision about whether um, whether what was just brought up is important enough to consider making an adjustment or change, and and that's how I approach it is making sure to listen as a non musician would first. And
0: I and I think that's why the vast majority of your comments or input in that relatively late stage were useful to me because I inherently knew they were coming from that place without us ever talking about it, you know? And cause this is the first, I, you, you said that I didn't know that per se. I just inherently knew it, you know, it was just baked into it, which is why I asked you to, to, to do that. You know? Uh, and I should mention, it's unusual for me to bring anybody into my process at that point. Um, but that's precisely why, because I thought, who knows this music better than me? Or not better than me, it, it, you know, comparable to me, Dan, you know? Um, and so, but it also mattered to me that you were coming at it from, once again, that place about what was, what was good for the music as the listener would hear it. Uh, and I, I remember with Love, Colored Soul in particular, because the harp functions throughout the record, it functions in a variety of ways. But not least of those ways is kind of a counterpoint to the guitar. Um, and um, so you bringing up something that, that, that maybe I I a new viewpoint, you know, was very helpful. Like you said, whether or not it was incorporated or not, it's just important as you're so in the middle of something like that. Because, you know, mixing is kind of post-production conducting. (laughs) In other words, I'm making choices about what I want the listener to be focused on, just like that's what a conductor does um, when when they're conducting the music. Uh, in a world where every musician played in the same room at the same time, that would pretty much be how it was recorded. But that wasn't the way this project was was going to work due to people being all over the country um, who I wanted on it. and so um, you know you have to make decisions about when when something uh, should have attention drawn to it and when it should not when when a, when, when a part like for example, uh, when the bassoon is doubling a cello line, when do you want to know that it's a bassoon, and when is the purpose of the bassoon just to make the cello, which is what you really hear, uh, stronger? You know, you know what I mean? That 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 line where where you could go anywhere, you could make it so the bassoon is what you really hear, and it sounds like the cello is just making the bassoon stronger, or flip that around on its head, or do they share the spotlight? And you hear them both both equally.
1: Well, you know, a, a, com- a comment uh, on, on that exact point regarding the bassoon and the cello, something like that, that I think is really interesting about this mixed conducting thing is remember that for hundreds of years in orchestral music before recording was even possible, the entire reason behind, excuse me, how many musicians in a particular group, how they were seated, how far the stage Mm -hmm. was. All of that stuff had to do with this, had to do with the way it was going to be perceived because nobody was recording because microphones didn't exist. So now when we record what we call an orchestra, you know, sure, we can have them seated in a particular way, but the truth is, is that we are going to be able to do what you just said. We're going to be able to actually make that decision. So imagine, you know, uh Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart you know sitting in front of a digital performer now saying are you are mm. you kidding I get to just <laughs> I get to just decide you know
0: yeah and by the way there is no doubt in my mind that all the great composers would be utilizing this technology um, I can only imagine how much hair got pulled out of Beethoven's head <laughs> when he took these masterpieces and heard them played for the first time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that I'm kind of coming at it from the opposite place, where I wanted to make sure that I left a lot of stuff alone, right? You know, in other words, I certainly did what I needed to do to make sure that the orchestra was, orchestra was mixed correctly, and the guitar was mixed correctly, and, you know, Eric Marianna Thal's saxophone was where it should be, and, and we all sounded like we were in the same room playing at the same time. But, I can only imagine what it would have been like the other way around when that technology wasn't there. And it must have been an adjustment for any great composer to hear their music suddenly not the way they heard it in their head. Um, and uh, and so you know they would have been all over the ability to control it. I mean, the, the stories about Glenn Gould just recording his, his solo piano works um, and splicing tape every which way and driving engineers who never even considered all of that driving them batty um because he recognized he could make it sound exactly the way he heard it in his head <laughs> and he wasn't going to stop until he did you know so um so it's it's it is a good time to be alive when it comes to to recording music and creating music i think and um you know but yet having said all that I got to tell you, I was really focused with this record in a way that I never have been before on leaving stuff alone and finding the best performances and making sure that the listener could hear them without an issue, but not creating any false moments. Uh, Every And in fact, that's the kind of stuff you pointed out, too. I remember there's a couple places in Grace of Summer Light where a particular motif is getting thrown all over the orchestra. And you said, oh, you got to make sure that they hear each one of those, you know, and um, and that was definitely something that I took to heart and incorporated and make sure I hope when you heard the final final mixes, you went, yep, that's right. I you did. I, and, and that's exactly
1: <laughs> right. I, I did. And, you know, those are those are also fun moments for me because uh Uh, One of the kind of comments I get from, you know, from audience members um, when I do concerts um, in any configuration and also listeners is people really tune into. Uh, a lot of people really tune into the interaction between players. And, and if it's on stage, they, they tune into, like, is he having fun when he's playing? Like, is he smiling? Right. Or, and they also tune into, oh, look, he just played something and now he played it. I think that people get into the teamwork aspect of it, like the tribal group aspect of it. And that little moment you just talked about in Grace, you know, to me, that was that was this moment where this song is just, is just really, like, moving moving forward this epic you know statement uh of of energy and music is moving forward and you have the 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 orchestra is going be-de-da, be-de-da, be-de-da. it's all of that stuff is happening and yeah. um and it's it to me it represents group cohesion and it represents being together uh being together um uh you know while you're while you're you're playing
0: hearing it clearly means that you feel like you're right in the middle of the communication that's going on.
1: Yeah. Right in the middle. Yeah. You
0: know, as that theme keeps getting passed in quick succession from one section to another, uh, and making sure that that was clear and clean without altering it in any way, but just making sure that the listener didn't have to work to have that experience, that, that is a big part of what mixing is all about. And, um, you know, uh, again, I think you picked your moments, and the things that you you pointed out um, at at that relatively late stage in the creation of the, of this of this album were um, were very useful. And uh, I think obviously because you you know you have great ears, but it's also uh, because you have a great ability to communicate um, and get to the heart of it. You know, because God, you know how much, you know how many millions of decisions had to be made with the with the writing and orchestrating of the music. You you could get into all kinds of details and things that become really pretty subjective. And what was useful to me with your input was exactly what you said before that it was coming from the listener standpoint, Um, and that means that you're you're not getting into minutia. You're getting into things that really matter in terms of communication, and the and the listener experiencing the emotion that I wanted them to feel, uh, as much as you can control that. People are going to feel what they're going to feel, you know. But um, however they choose to interpret that moment we were just talking about, I want them to I want them to feel it. They can interpret it however they want. So you know, I appreciate what the way that you approach that as i think you approached this whole process was always about trying to serve the music that i'd created and 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 make the realization of it as effective a, as possible
1: oh definitely uh, thank you for that you know uh talking about grace of summer light something that i may have mentioned to you is um it, this relates to just the feeling as you were saying the feeling of it something the listener might be interested in uh is you know, th- th- think of the title. Those words, the grace mm-hmm. of you know. First of all, what does grace mean? You know, mm-hmm. in terms of graciousness, in terms of you know, um, coming at something in a in a selfless way, and then right. and then and then the grace of summer of summer light, not just light but but summer light this, this the mm-hmm. the light of of summer is something that most people would would find you know enjoyable and so it's not being thrown or tossed at you it's being graciously given to you and so you know sometimes you know I'm here in Florida now and in fact I was uh, it was dusk in Florida uh uh you know yesterday I was at the beach and I was just walking around and I took some pictures I actually put one on my Instagram and it's just very simple but I just yeah. I just saw this beautiful Cloud formation. We've all done this, like taking pictures of things. But that's what I think about when I listen to the to the music as the listener. I think, you know, what is the feeling that's coming across here? And you know, the the very last chord. I remember asking you about the last chord in "Grace of Summer Light" because that that sound, you know, without again getting into the minutiae of it, but just the sound of it, um, sounds like this um, prismatic you know, array of 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 colors that's that's just like that's just in it's just being given to you like you've just listened to all this amazing journey of music and it's just going and then right at the end is this beautiful chord <laughs> and you listen to it and it's it's you know as look as a musician it it interests me because I'm like hmm that's that's not something I've heard before in terms of a voicing and it's really beautiful there's so many harmonics going on here what's going on and without getting into the details again of it the truth is is that it just feels really great and feels really new and it feels really vibrant and it feels Feels like what I might think the grace of summer light would sound like, if I, you know, if if it existed. And now it does exist. And and I, it just as listeners listening to that, like when you listen to something like uh, "Love Colored Soul," for example, that just the language of the title the language of the title, love colored soul, you know, you have color, you have love and you have the soul, which is our spirit.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and the, and what's being communicated here is, is um, when you, when you listen to the melody as it's stated and you listen to the, you know, different instruments laying out the arpeggios and stuff, you know, it, that's, this is just stuff that I think really helps, helps us experience life better uh, when we listen to music that's crafted this way so that you know it, it brings something out and I and I think all of these decisions we're talking about through the process you know um, we want to make sure and I think we did I know we did the decisions are always coming from that human spot of okay right. I know as a musician that it's that that he just played a B, but it feels so right let me close my eyes right. and you know and listen again and see how it feels and and this is the thing that this is the thing that uh that makes an artist an artist is is that the artist decided that's the way it was going to be and now you know uh decades later we can look at a georgia O'Keeffe painting of a skull in the desert and we can say you know that's that's definitely what it was. Like, I'm if she was here, standing here right now, she wouldn't say, you know what? I think it could have been different. She'd know. She'd say, no. I decided that that's the way it's going to be. That's the image I want to present. And right. and and yeah. as artists, you know, we we have this opportunity to do that. And I know that in the last few weeks, you were kind of sending me mixes, and we were talking about it. And you were saying, you know, this thing's going to go out. You know, I'm going to be done with it. And so, you know, give me any feedback you got. This is what we're thinking about. This is what we're doing. And and, um I would listen to it with that in mind knowing that if there's anything that that feels specifically uh specifically like I should bring it up I I would and I think that any anybody listening to this if you create art of any kind it's um it's a it's a gift you're giving to yourself to be able to wear both hats to be the creator and also the experiencer
0: and I I, I think you have to I, I mean I this isn't you know I'm sure a a um a point of contention that that different artists feel different ways about what they owe to their to their the listener or the viewer or whatever whatever medium you're talking about but to me I do want my music to communicate to people and so much of what went on in the final stages of the mixing was really not about fixing stuff it wasn't about what was wrong i mean there really wasn't anything wrong it was about making sure that moments particularly moments with extreme communication possibilities were not in any way uh given short shrift you know that they were they were of anything magnified uh it, it, and and that that's where i think you and i are very much on the same same wavelength, um, that and and whether or not you as an artist think it's your responsibility to to take your audience into account. I mean, in the end, you have to do what really moves you, right? I mean, you have. I, there's no way that that I'm gonna go to all this trouble and expense if I don't really believe in every single note that I put down on the page. I don't, I don't know if you remember, but pretty late in the process, I was still rewriting the introduction to Fortunate Son uh, because I just felt like this has got to be the very best that I can deliver. And I'm not thinking the very best thing the audience will like. I'm thinking the very best thing that I will like. So it it has to start with the artist. That's why you're the artist. But yet, in the process, I want to make sure that what I work so hard to, to create and, and, and put myself into is absolutely doing the best it can to reach the audience. So, you know, as I say, I think various people would have different differing opinions about it, but the fact that you and I are, were, are on the same page uh, is part of the reason why I think we work really well together on this. And and also the fact that we're both you know anal, <laughs> which you almost have to be for this to 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 go as smoothly as it did, um, you know you if you if you're not a person who likes to pay attention to details, uh, I, I don't know how this works, you know. Um, it's it's just it's it's not possible without that that element being in there too so so um well dan i really appreciate you doing this podcast with me today uh i think this is going to be really interesting for uh people to listen to before they've purchased the album after they purchased the album maybe even years after they've been listening to the album they may stumble upon this podcast and go oh my goodness wow you know that's what i'm hoping and i and i i think um I think that that we've we've done a good job today of covering all the different elements uh over that year and a half that 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 I first brought you into this um I think we did a good job of covering all those different elements that 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 you were so important uh to helping me with and uh, and and getting to the end of this project where where it kind of i mean i listen i be honest with you Dan I listen and I just go. I did it. I can't believe it. I actually did this. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Cuz it it's, was a big 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 bite to take. Um and uh I'm just so thankful and happy that my instinct to to call you and get you involved at 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 an early stage that I followed that instinct because I it was one of my best instincts <laughs> with doing doing this album. So thank you thank you again uh for your for everything that you did. And, uh, of course, thank you today for doing the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. Well, that's it, my friends. My talk with Dan LaMaestra. So, don't forget, you can buy music for guitar and orchestra at Amazon, iTunes, all kinds of other retail online sites and actual what we call brick-and-mortar stores. And it's, you know, on all the streaming services. And you can get an autographed copy... At my website, exclusively at my website, ww.kennavarro.com. So please pay my website a visit and please pick up your copy of music for guitar and orchestra. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast.